0: we are heading into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me as I debated what would be helpful to us. And some have asked me why there's a sermon series on Ephesians, I would just note that um, for the last year, we have been in many uh, narratival sections of Scripture. We've been in Genesis, we've been in Exodus in the evening, we were in John, all narratives, and then we were reading through the book of Revelation, that apocalyptic book, um, in the evenings. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to go through a didactic book. That's one of the, the literary genres in which Scripture is divided. And, and if we're honest... As Western Christians, at least if I'm honest, I'm going to tell you that I prefer reading didactic portions of Scripture because we like propositions, we like linear thinking, so you are going to get 18 to 20 or so sermons in one of the greatest letters in the Bible. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh minister um, in England, preached 200, I believe, in 89 sermons through Ephesians. You're going to get 18 through 20. So I am very merciful, and you should be thankful for that because I don't want to go verse by verse by verse through Ephesians. So we're going to take bigger pericopes, and we are going to do more of a bird's eye consideration of the Apostle Paul's teaching here. This morning, I want us to read together that opening section of Ephesians, verses 1 through 14, and we are going to look in a focused way at the first four verses, and then next Lord's Day, we will pick up and focus in on verses 3 through 14 in a more concentrated way. So we are looking this morning at Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 14, Um, and as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me. Now the Apostle Paul presumably writing this letter to a church he had spent three years with, um, one of the churches he spent the longest amount of time with during his missionary journeys. He had set up a camp there. He had taught every day, five hours a day for three years in the school of Tyrannus. It was something of a theological institution, And, and even after spending that much time with that church, and this is so very significant, even after spending that much time with those people, training officers, training the people, teaching them the riches of the gospel, Paul feels like there is more. That's why we have this letter. Paul wants them to know there is always more. There is always more Christ. There is always greater depths that we can go in the gospel. And so he is writing this letter from prison in Rome, and now he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing Of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1559, on May 1st, 1559, John Calvin uh, stood in his pulpit in Geneva and he began a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He had been a minister for 19 years, he was 49 years old when he began this sermon series. And it would only last 10 months. He was also very merciful to his congregation. But what you may not know is that during his preaching of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in that massive group of both uh, natives to Geneva and the many exiles who had come fleeing the persecution they were enduring um, in, in many countries throughout Europe and the U.K., among those many people sat John Knox, and you will know John Knox's name. He will become the father of Presbyterianism. He would take the Reformation from Geneva to Scotland, and we have Presbyterianism today because of the work of John Knox. What you may not also know is that as John Knox lay dying on his deathbed, he had an English translation of uh, Dennis uh, Ragunier's transcription of Calvin's sermons on Ephesians next to his bed, um, and, and we get something of the sense of the gravity and the importance of what this book meant to the Reformation. Um, we often think of Paul's letter to the Romans, or we think of Galatians because they held such a prominent role in the preaching of justification by faith alone, but here I think Calvin, and, and notably Knox, and the Reformation felt the impact of Paul's letter to the Ephesians because nowhere in the New Testament do we get so great an inlet into the doctrine of the free and unmerited grace of God in Christ as we do in Ephesians. If you want to get recentered and recalibrated in understanding that the totality of the Christian life from from eternity to eternity is merely by the grace of God in Christ, you come to Ephesians. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to set out in verses 3 through 14 of this section. He's going to go from from eternity past when God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world to the consummation in eternity. And he's going to say throughout, it's, it's all by grace, it's all to the praise of his glory. And I want to say this this morning before we look at this, that is so very hard for our hearts to get. When we are restless, when we are anxious, when we are angry, when we are complaining, when we are bitter, when we grumble, when we are just jacked up, it's because we are not resting in the knowledge of what God has done for us in Christ merely by his grace. Uh, we so often, and those of you who have been Christians for many years feel this, we so often begin to convince ourselves that somehow the Christian life is something I have to bring more than just the grace of God and what he has accomplished in Christ. And Paul, in this letter, is going to root everything in the doctrine of the grace of God in Christ and the gospel. Uh, This book can be divided into two sections. You know that if you've studied this. Uh, The first three chapters are the great indicatives of the Christian faith. They are the facts. They are the doctrine. They are the foundation. This is what the triune God has done for us in Christ. Very interesting. Even here in chapter 1, Paul is not going to talk so much about what you need as a sinner so much as what God has purposed in himself to do for you apart from anything you do. And so it's important that Paul is starting in those first three chapters with laying that foundation of the grace of God in Christ in the gospel, and then in chapters 4 through 6, the application of that. How then should we respond to that teaching? The indicatives and the imperatives. I want to say this this morning because it is so important. Sinclair Ferguson often notes that for us to have fruitful Christian lives— The indicatives of what God has done in Christ have to be weighty enough to hold the imperatives of what God calls us to do as Christians. Because if they're not, we will buckle under the failures, or we will be judgmental toward others that we think aren't doing what we think they ought to be doing. And so the indicatives have to be weighty enough for the imperatives, Well, we're going to consider this morning as we look at just the first four verses and actually really just the first three verses here of Ephesians 1 is I want us to consider first a grace-filled greeting from Paul, and then I want us to consider a grace-filled doxology, a grace-filled greeting and a grace-filled doxology. We'll notice as Paul begins this letter, he is addressing it in that common epistolary way in which letters were written in his day. He is addressing this church. They know who he is. He wants to remind them of who it is that's writing this. And, and so he simply begins by greeting them, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, Paul is not taking anything to himself that has not been given to him by the grace of God in Christ. Um, I was shocked, and by the way, you should be shocked, I was shocked yesterday to be scrolling through Facebook and I saw somebody post a a big conference with the apostle so-and-so and and his wife. I'm thinking, y'all, it's 2022, we all know there are no more apostles. Let's just put that out there. If you don't know that, I'm here to tell you that. There were 12 apostles and then Paul, that's it. it there are no more apostles. Jesus delegated the apostles and commissioned them to fulfill his word by giving the fuller revelation from his spirit, by carrying the gospel to the nations for the first time to lay the foundation of the new covenant church. And when the last apostle died, there are no more apostles. And so when Paul appeals to his, uh, his apostleship, He is not appealing to anything he's taken on himself. Notice he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now remember who Paul was. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. If anyone is going to understand that the totality of the Christian life is all of grace and only of grace, it is this man. He was not seeking for Jesus. He was taking letters and commanding that Christians be drug out of their homes and thrown into prisons. So if anyone is going to understand when he was converted on the Damascus Road, Paul is going to understand the doctrine of grace in the greatest way possible. Paul will actually speak of himself in this letter as being less than the least of all the saints. He says, I who am less than the least... Of all the saints, to me this grace was given. And so Paul is not even going to introduce himself without rooting that introduction in God's grace in both redeeming him and calling him into ministry. That's amazing. That's amazing. Paul, who was an enormous intellect, can take nothing to himself, can own nothing personally, cannot even mention himself without mentioning that it was Christ who sent him. It was Christ who commissioned him. Now that's important to us, and if you're wondering here in 2022 why that's important, because that apostolic witness still has great weight and bearing on us and our Christian lives. In the midst of all the things that you're told to believe, all the things that you read, all the things that that are vying for your attention and for the affection of your heart, there is one thing and one thing only that should really and truly grip us, and that is the revelation that Jesus has given us in Scripture through the apostles. Uh, There is a great scene, if you know John Bunyan's, literary classic the pilgrim's progress where christian having been converted was brought by interpreter was brought into interpreter's house by evangelist and as he's in the house and he sees many different things happening in the house he sees a painting on the wall of a man with a grave look on his face with his eyes up to heaven with a, a bible in his hand and and he asks who is this and and the interpreter tells him this is the one who has begat many children who has given guidance to many. This is the Apostle Paul that Bunyan is seeing, and he's understanding that the purpose of Paul's apostolic ministry was that the Word of God would come to bear on the people of God, that they would understand that there is a divine weight to the doctrine that is being taught. That what Paul writes in here, and he'll say this in chapter 3, is that actually what he is writing, he says, when you read this, you will know my my knowledge of the mystery of Christ— That it had been revealed to him in great measure. When you, and I would encourage you to read through the book of Ephesians, it'll take you 20 minutes to be reading through this letter as we go through it, and you will see that no mere man could have ever written the depths and, and riches of what God has done in Christ as has been revealed to his apostles by his Spirit and given to us in Scripture. Um, Now, I will say this this morning, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Um, This is not meant to be a theological treatise, per se. It is a letter that Paul is writing to a particular people, and yet it it is a cyclical letter. It is meant for the whole church, just like Colossians, its counterpart. It was meant for all believers everywhere to read this, and... And we are meant as we read this to understand more about who we are when we consider the subjects of the grace of God. Notice as he addresses them in the second part of verse one to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is not a special category of believers. Please get this this morning. When Paul addresses the believers in Ephesus as saints, he is addressing them as he would address anyone who is savingly united to Jesus. That is, your position in Christ. It's not for a special category of people who have done special things and have somehow merited this status. That is the very status of the people of God. You, if you are in Christ, are a saint. You have been set apart. You are holy unto the Lord. You have been, you have been sanctified in Christ. You have been set apart for the special purposes of God. And notice that Paul then says that they are also faithful in Christ Jesus. They have positional sainthood because of their faith in Christ, but they also have themselves shown themselves to be faithful in the Lord Jesus. They are desiring to live faithful Christian lives. They are desiring to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And then notice, and this is the big theme here, who he is writing is those who are, and Paul uses a little preposition, ace, in Greek, those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there is no greater way that you can think about yourself if you are a true believer than that you are in union with Jesus. Paul doesn't just say, as he'll say elsewhere, that that they had believed in the Lord, on the Lord, not just that they had believed the Lord, he will use all that language elsewhere in the New Testament, but here Paul will use what is his favorite construct to explain the Christian life, and he will say that he is writing to those who are in Christ. Those are, they are now united to him by faith, so inseparably united to them that, that his life is their life. That he so represents them that what is true of him is true of them. Paul can't find a greater construct to explain what has happened in the life of a believer than to use that little construct that you are in Christ. What a difference that would make in our Christian lives, our conversations, the ways we even think about our relationship with the Lord if we remember that we are in union with Jesus. Um, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he'll have to defend his ministry because it was constantly being undermined because he wasn't very good-looking. He wasn't eloquent. He didn't live up to what these super apostles said they were. And, and you'll remember there's this strange section In 2 Corinthians, where Paul's talking about this man, he said, I knew a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heavens. And and I remember as a young Christian being like, who is this man? Well, it's Paul. When Paul wants to talk about himself and the privileges that he received, the way he does it is to say, I knew a man in Christ. I knew a man in Christ. What a difference that would make if you recognized that your life is in Christ. What we sang this morning, my worth is not in what I own. Our worth is in Christ. God sees us in union with Christ. In fact, I would argue that if we're not in Christ, then we are outside of the boundaries and the spheres of the grace of God because all of God's grace, all of his mercy, all of his peace, all of his blessings are in Christ. Notice when Paul goes, at the end of verse 3, to talk about what has happened, he says that, we, that God the Father has blessed us, notice this, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So everything is in Christ. Um, you know, one of the litmus tests of how well we get this is how much we think about Christ, speak about him, long to be close with him and commune with him. Because when we really get this, it, it exhilarates our heart, knowing what God has done for sinners like us who are so undeserving, that he would not only forgive us, but that he would unite us to his very son forever. I don't know if you know this, but in the Westminster Confession of Faith, they rightly speak about what's going to happen to believers when they die. And you could look this up in in the last things section in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They actually say that the bodies of believers still united to Christ in the ground. Think about that. When you are buried, if you're in Christ right now, your body, even though your spirit will be with him, your body still remains in union with Christ until the resurrection. That's how how full-orbed and important this doctrine is. From the beginning of eternity when God shows us in Christ till our bodies lay in the ground in union with Christ waiting for the resurrection and the consummation. And so notice Paul is really trying to emphasize the greatness of God's grace both to him and to those he's writing. I love this quote, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've already mentioned this morning to you, He says this about this epistle. Listen carefully. He says grace is the ultimate origin and source and fount of everything in the Christian life. Grace is the ultimate origin and source and fount of everything in the Christian life. Um, I need to hear that every day of my life. Because our consciences are so hardwired to try to work for God's favor that we forget so often we can't gain his favor by what we do. We only gain his favor by being united to Christ by faith. Because Christ, notice verse 7, end of verse 6, is the beloved. He is the beloved Son of God. Now, in this grace-filled greeting, Notice that Paul is going to do one more thing, and now he is going to pronounce that blessing of grace over the people. Notice verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have to listen very carefully because what Paul is going to do both at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, and just notice this with me, he is going to say grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And then he's going to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He is going to link together inseparably the Father and the Son in the work of salvation, redemption, and the impartation of his grace to his people. And he's going to do that, and listen very carefully, he's going to do that because apart from Jesus, God is merely a consuming fire and you can never come into his presence. We wouldn't dare try to approach the living God apart from the mediation of Jesus. Listen to this. One old uh, theologian, John Ferguson, probably related to Sinclair some distant way, said this, Looking to God with respect to Jesus Christ inflames the heart, with such a mixture of love and admiration at his excellencies and worth, that looking to God with respect to Jesus must of necessity break forth in our blessing him. God considered without Christ is a consuming fire. God considered without Christ is a consuming fire. Now, Paul has pronounced this blessing on these believers in Ephesus. And and what a fitting way, isn't it, for him to open in verse 2 with those words, grace to you and peace. And then notice at the very end of the book in chapter 6, notice the final word, chapter 6, verse 24, grace. Be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He begins the book by pronouncing a blessing of grace. He ends the book by pronouncing a blessing of God's grace to his people. Now, as I said already, that means that we are to understand that the entirety of our relationship with God is merely by his unmerited, undeserved favor. In fact, I'd go further, and I like the way Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul used to say this. Actually, it's not that we don't, merit his grace. It's that it is demerited, that we have done everything not to deserve him doing everything for us. And so notice now, secondly, moving from this grace-filled greeting to a grace-filled doxology. Notice that, that Paul is now going to break forth in, in verse 3 and all the way down to verse 14 into this, this doxology, this eulogizing, the word is in the Greek. He is going to eulogize God. For what he's done. And some of you I know know this, um, Paul would have been a terrible associate editor because verse 3 through 14 is one very long run-on sentence. In fact, one scholar said, Paul launches into this glorious doxology with a majestic contempt for grammar and analysis. Um. You know what? I think Paul is so full of what he wants to explain to the Ephesians, so full of wonder at what God has done for his people in Jesus Christ, that, that he can't help throw out every rule of grammar in order to give them, as it has been said, the grammar of the gospel. He is giving them the grammar of the gospel. Um, next Lord's Day, we'll look at the specific blessings, there are seven in this, in this doxology, and yet this morning I want us to just basically consider what is happening here. You know, Paul is teaching us at the very outset that the right response to a heart that has been gripped by the grace of God and the gospel of Christ is that we would break forth in praising him. Um, it, it's almost not something sense in which it, it, it can't be taught. It's something that that bursts forth spontaneously out of his heart. And again, let me say this this morning. If, if your heart is dull, if you have a hard time singing to the Lord with an inflamed heart of gratitude, it's because we've forgotten the grace of God and the greatness of that grace. And one of the tragic things, and, and I've seen this in ministry over several decades now, is that when people who have never heard these things come into the church, there is a childlike wonder and joy about them, and there is an affecting overflow of that. It's not manufactured. It's sincere. And then as, as the years roll on and, and the decades go by, I see in so many believers that it, it just seems commonplace as if, yeah, we got that. And that's the wrong response, I heard uh, Ligon Duncan preach a sermon on this 20 years ago, and he told the story of a woman who had lost her son in a tragic accident, and he said that the amazing thing was that when this woman lost her young child, the first thing she did was she fell down on her face and she worshipped God the way Job did. And Ligan said, and I'll never forget it, he said she couldn't do that because she started doing it right then and there. She could do it at that moment when she underwent such a horrific loss because she was in the habit of doing it in her daily life, knowing the greatness of God's grace to her. Isn't that interesting? When we, when we are not in the habit of praising God, we're not just going to spontaneously start to do that. Paul is teaching us here that the right response to the doctrine of God's grace is to break forward in blessing God. Now, there is going to be summarized in verses 3 through 14, as I've already noted, that really the whole of God's plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity to come, if we can put it that way. Um, He's going to start with the predestinating and electing Grace of God, he's going to end with the consummating grace of God in Christ. And as I've already noted throughout the entirety of this letter and throughout this section, you're going to note, notice that recurrent phrase, in him, in Christ. He did this in him. And so when he says now that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he is giving us the sphere of his blessing. Where am I to go? to discover the blessings of God. And he's going to say that they are all in Christ and they are in the heavenly places. Now, that little phrase, in the heavenly places, is going to surface throughout this letter. Um, Here in chapter 1, we're told that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then in chapter 2, he's going to say that he raised Christ up and seated him in the heavenly places. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 6, he's going to say, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavenly places. So what, what Paul is telling us in this letter is that the Christian life is lived in a different sphere than any other person lives his or her life in this world. If you belong to Christ, you are so united to Christ that he has already seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what he says in chapter 2. Positionally, he is representing you. And that means that even as we live here in Charleston or in other cities here around us, just as they were saints in Ephesus, we are living our lives In a different realm, we are living our lives in a world of grace, a world of peace, a world of having been reconciled to God. You know, I'll give you a confession this morning. I am often plagued by the fact that I don't have more unbelievers Say about me, or hear them say about other believers I know, there's something different about that person. They are from a different world. Paul is wanting you to understand you are from a different world, you belong to a different realm. Um, You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, here's the other thing Paul's saying he's also saying this is not your home and that this is not what we are to be putting our hope in. Jonathan Edwards, in his exposition of this, in his uh, blank Bible, his notebook, he says this, Christians have their blessedness in heavenly places. They are not of the world. That is not their country or their home. Their inheritance, listen carefully, their inheritance, their house, Their treasures, their food, their ornaments, their friends, their society, their entertainments are in heavenly places. Their enjoyments are not in an earthly paradise. They are not of the first Adam, who was of the earth, earthly. They are taken out of that stock. They are children of the second Adam, who was a quickening spirit, the Lord from heaven. They are, therefore, they therefore belong to Christ and are in Christ. Their blessings are spiritual and in heavenly places, not in earthly, not in Eden, or any other country. Now that means that God wants you to understand the greatness of everything that he has for you in Christ already. Um, I've noted already when we when we forget that the whole of the Christian life from beginning to end is by grace through faith in Christ as Paul's going to say in chapter 2 that that We slide into complaining and grumbling, bickering, anger, strife. Um, And and as it's been put so well, we, we all have a tendency to live far below what is already ours in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Paul starts this letter out by saying, You have been blessed with every, all spiritual blessings in Christ. Um, I already noted that the Apostle had been with these people for three years. He had taught them day and night for three years, and yet he feels in this letter as though there's more that they need to get. Uh, my hope as we make our way through this sermon series is that you all will understand that there's always so much more. In Christ, that you won't be bored with the gospel. I see so many Christians that are just bored with the gospel. That's why they run to political activism. It's why they run to social activism. It's why they run to everything else. They get bored with Christ. Don't get bored with Christ. Don't get bored with Christ. The metric is, are you running to other things, or are you praising God and rejoicing for all that he has already done for you, as he has united you to the one in whom we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Let me say this this morning. If somebody told you there was a place where you could go and there were more riches than you could ever satisfy your life with, I almost guarantee you, you would run to that place. Well, Paul is telling you that this morning. He says, in Christ, there are more riches riches of God's grace and mercy. There is more peace with God. There is more joy. There is more cause for praising God. And it's all in him. Run to him. Go to him. Abide in him. Believe what is already yours in Christ. Um, I want to ask you this morning, wherever you are in your Christian life, are you longing to know more of the riches of God's grace in Christ? Because that is the very secret to growing in grace and fruitful Christian living. Then I would ask you this morning, if you haven't come to Christ, uh, why wouldn't you come to the Lord Jesus? You know, from the outset of this epistle, the apostle is wishing these believers peace from God. Don't you want peace with God? That's the one thing you should want more than anything, that you and your soul are at peace through God, and Paul will tell us in chapter 2, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. That's where that peace comes from. He himself is our peace, Paul will say. He is made of the two, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. Why would you not want to be brought in, reconciled to God, and to know peace in your souls? Um. I'm sure that I won't do justice to this sermon series as we go through this, but again, I want to encourage you to be reading through this letter as we work through it over the next several months, and I hope that you will be drawn deeper and deeper into gratitude for what you have in Christ, that you will learn to live out of your union with Christ, that you will cry out to the Lord to help you to understand more of what you already have in him. Um, that is the very foundation of the Christian life. As Lloyd Jen says, I'll leave you with this thought, grace is the ultimate origin and source and fount of everything in the Christian life, and it is all in Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for these glorious words. We do acknowledge that our hearts are sometimes dull that we have not yet understood these things as we ought we have not praised you as we ought and so we pray that you would cause these truths to deep down sink down deep into our souls that you would cause them to cause within us a burning desire to praise you to bless you for all that you have given us in Christ that you would give us joy inexpressible and full of glory as we contemplate how you have dealt with sinners like us through your Son. We thank you and praise you for our union with Christ. We pray that you would make us to know more of that union and to live in light of the truth of it, that we might be fruitful and faithful and growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.